Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. And welcome everyone to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and that was the sweet sound of the Super 70 Sports theme song. That's right. License-free music brought to you courtesy of California's very own The Big Fellas. You can find their music at bigfellas.net. They're on Twitter, at The Big Fellas. Described as Steely Dan for the Paps Blue Ribbon crowd. And you know, my dad was a Paps Blue Ribbon man. Although as an adult male living in Kentucky in the 1970s, he was drinking it unironically. Big ups to my friend Charlie Rexick from the Big Fellas. He put this together for me. Couldn't be happier about it. Check him out. Bigfellas.net at the Big Fellas. Thanks so much, guys. And my guest today, really excited, a baseball player, finally. I cannot believe that I've made it 10 episodes into the history of the Super 70 Sports Podcast without talking to a major league player. We're going to correct that oversight today because my guest is Ellis Valentine. 1977 Major League All-Star, 1978 Gold Glove Award winner, and a guy who is on the short list of greatest outfield arms in baseball history. And a lot of people, myself included, think that he just might be number one. On that list. Ellis has had an interesting career and life for a variety of reasons. So we're going to get into all that stuff on the field, off the field, uh, his accomplishments and and much more, as well as a discussion that we'll have near the, the end of our interview about past pros, which is something that Ellis co-founded and he's using as a medium to connect players of yesteryear with their fans today. So it's pretty exciting as well as the first ever Pass Pros Roadshow that's going to be coming up August the 13th in Plano, Texas. And I'm so excited about this that I'm making plans right now to head down from Chicago and join those guys in Plano on August the 13th because there's going to be some stars out there. We'll discuss that today as well. So, joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Major League All-Star, Gold Glove Award winner, and Montreal Expos great, Ellis Valentine. Ellis, how are you? Ricky, I'm doing pretty good, man. How's, how's it going with you? Going very well. Glad to have you on the podcast. Um, I, I, I got to ask you, I, I, going back to the beginning of your career, one of the things that strikes me really uh, as being interesting is that you're drafted out of high school in 1972, second-round pick out of Crenshaw in, in Los Angeles, and you get picked by, at that time, a pretty new franchise and the only major league team that's not in the United States. What was your reaction to finding out that you've been drafted by a Canadian team? Well, actually, I was very excited. It didn't really matter where the team was. It was just that the fact that I was being drafted and uh, and I had gotten a chance to, to move on and, and uh, I guess grow my career or grow my abilities because I just had a wonderful time growing up playing baseball in South Central LA so it was just fantastic to be able to be 
before I graduated high school know that I had already signed a contract to go off and play professional baseball and could uh, possibly take my family to a different level. So I thought that was just awesome. I mean, what's it like as a as a young man? Because you started out in, in rookie ball, uh, obviously the uh, the same year that you were that you were drafted, and then you you went on to A ball the following year. I mean, what, what's it like as a because I look back on what I was like as a teenager, and I, I don't know, you know, baseball aside, I don't know how I would have handled myself being relocated all the way across the country and, 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 and you know, doing a, and having a job to do on, on top of it. Uh, I mean, how much pressure is that for a, for a young man to go into the world of professional ball? Actually, it wasn't that tough. Uh, I've always been a, a, a believer and uh, trust God and I you know I've gotten stronger and stronger with my faith over the years uh, and you know when I, when I was asked to go off to Jamestown and then on to Cocoa Beach and so on um, it was really not that difficult uh, there was other guys that was experiencing the same thing so we kind of you know kind of stuck together and kind of held each other uh, you know together and made that thing work but um it was uh, what my life was planned for. You know, uh, growing up in L.A., you know, my mom knew that if I was out of pocket, she couldn't just look outside and find me, and she needed to find me. She would drive around to all of the baseball fields in our immediate area. I would be on one of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, so that's just the way of life, you know. And when that draft came around, it was just, it was just uh, just another day. Now you went up the chain, uh, probably in, in sort of a standard way. You started in rookie ball, A ball the next year, double A the next year, and and at that time the Expos double A team was in, I believe, Quebec City. Uh, Correct. So you're so you're in French Canada at that point, which is uh, I guess giving you a taste of uh, what was to come uh, when you made the big club. Uh, how much of an adjustment was that culturally, uh, you know, being in, because French Canada is a little bit different. So, you know, was that something that was a, that was a challenge for you at all? It was, uh, it was quite different. You know, I grew up in LA. Um, first of all, let's just go back. Uh, when I got drafted and went to Jamestown, New York, it was really a, a cultural shock for me because I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. Yes, we had other ethnicities in the area. However, the the majority of my surroundings were African-American, were black folks, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Jamestown, New York, <laughs> it was really a shock, <laughs> you know, because Jamestown is this little, little bitty town where we had this ball club there in the middle of this community. Uh, it's like they cut out a square and they put a baseball field in the middle of this community. It's like some movie that Kevin, Kevin Costner would be in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all around the, all around the outfield, there was houses with, you know, swings on the porch and, you know, people sitting there and they sit there all day and they swing back and forth and back and forth. And it, it, you know, to me, it was so different because in my high school, there was one Asian, we had one Asian um, uh, student and one Hispanic in our high school. That was it. And, 
you know, the rest was 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 black, okay? And so when I got to Jamestown, and the first two days in Jamestown, other than uh, a couple of players that was on the team, uh, I did not see another black person for the first two days. And Ricky, it really shocked the crap out of me. Okay, <laughs> that would have been honestly, it was it was quite interesting. So. I, I decided to leave the dorm because we all were staying in this dormitory there, you know. Uh, and uh, there was this little corner store right there, you know, on the one end of the field. And the little corner store, you know, you had your, you know, your t- typical cookies on the counter, you know, your candies and your sodas. You can get whatever you need. And in the back, they had a pool table and a little bowling alley. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really kind of country. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know? it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, so I walk in there. And I wanted to go get something to eat, and, uh, and I look in the back, and there's this black guy back there. I assumed he was black. He was just as dark as I was. And so he's back there shooting pool, and so me, very shocked and out of place, and kind of nervous about where I'm at. I go back and. He's playing pool by himself. And I walk up to him and I'm like, hey man, how you doing? Da, da, da. You know, it was just a familiar sight for me. And he's from Puerto Rico. He speaks Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> now, mind you, I live in South Central LA. It's not like New York where you have, or Florida where you have, you know, guys that come over that have my color skin that speak Spanish, you know, they're from other countries, uh, right. Puerto Rico, uh, Dominica, these places. We didn't have that in L.A., okay? If you were Hispanic, you lived in East Los Angeles, uh, and that was it. You're over in East Los Angeles, and uh, the blacks lived over here, and white folks lived over there. And <sighs> so he opened his mouth, and he began to speak Spanish. Dude, I just panicked. <laughs> I freaked. And I went back to the dorm, and I stayed in the dorm and I would not come out. <laughs> and the Kale family came down and got me the following day. I mean, this is my stuff at that point. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's James sounds is like everything was white. I mean, I'm not prejudiced or anything, but that's just the way it was. Right, just the a big cultural was white, difference. The streets was white, the cars was white, the houses was white. You know, <laughs> and I'm sitting here and I'm going, this is very different for me. And so, when that happened, I went back to the room. I was just in another world, just shut it down. I think that's something that people don't think about. I mean, it, it's you know, obviously you're you're playing baseball, and people look at it and they say, "Oh, well, I would you know, I'd love to be able to play baseball for a, for a living." But uh, you're taking kids from all over different places in the country and then expecting them to just uproot their entire life and go somewhere else, and that's got to be tough on anybody. Yeah. And they expect them to be okay. Right. With that. I mean, you know, they have histories and families and backgrounds and things that, you know, might not necessarily cooperate with all these things that you guys are doing. So you asked me about Quebec City. Uh, you know, it kind of prepared me for Quebec City going through those initial channels, you follow me? So mm-hmm. I got up to Quebec and, you know, they spoke French, although it's just a different culture. However, it's still the same. So I was a little better prepared for Quebec City uh, after 
after going through the Jamestown thing and then playing in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and the following year playing uh, at uh, uh, West Palm Beach, uh, Florida, because Florida's, you know, deep as far as south you can go to. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was a whole nother ball game right there. So that's a that's another podcast, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right, yeah, we'll save something. We'll save something for down the road. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> so, so you 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 make it up as a September call up in 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 seventy five and and see a little yeah. action uh, in Montreal and then in seventy six uh, you know you, you you were up for a, for a longer period of time you spent some time in in Triple A ball uh, during seventy six now those were the last two years I believe for Jerry Park. Uh, yeah, and, and so what? What are your memories? What are your memories of of, of that place? Uh, it was cold, and it was a difficult part to hit in for a right-handed hitter. Um, and uh, I do remember the fans were right on top of you because it was basically just a, a local park that they converted. Mm-hmm. And they, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, so uh, the other thing that I remember was hitting the last home run in that ballpark uh, before the Expos left. Uh, well, that's a tie-in. That's a tie-in to the next thing that I was going to say because you, you hit the last home run in Jerry Park, and then you turn around in '77 and you hit the first home run in Olympic Stadium. Correct. <laughs> so, and it was just um, you know I was pretty good. And let's just let's just uh, be real here. Uh, I was a pretty a pretty gifted athlete, and I had always played up in my uh, career growing up in Los Angeles. I always played with older guys, and uh, they made me better. Uh, and one of the reasons that I got scouted uh, very early on in my life is because I was playing with twelve year olds, and I was ten. Okay, mm-hmm. so what had happened? You know, they moved up my birth certificate because they wanted me to play. You know, organized ball back then, and hell, you had to be nine years old to play little league back in the day. Okay, it wasn't this four-year-old t-ball thing. Right, you had to wait until you were nine, and so I was seven, and they kind of doctored my birth certificate so that I could play, so that I, I would keep breaking people's windows <laughs> in the neighborhood, hitting home runs and throwing rocks and bottles and baseballs and, and breaking their car windows out and denting them up. They said, "Let's get this boy on the park," you know. And uh, so that's what happened. Uh, and uh, next thing I know, a guy showed up to my house named uh, Grover Strickland. He was like a scout or something, recruiter back in the day. I'm seven, but he was just a manager of a baseball team uh, um, back there at the South Park Braves. And he asked me to throw to him and play catch. And he, like, did a workout with me right there in my, on the side of my house. And uh, next thing you know, I was on his team and pitching and playing with nine-year-olds and so I got pretty good so the first couple of years of my career I was, I, was I, I, I took off pretty well and did okay but yeah that Montreal uh, uh, first home run in the Olympic Stadium was, was pretty cool I mean, and you hit it off Steve Carlton too so I mean yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, if you look back over my career Colin brought this to my attention that I was most productive against the star pitchers and I, you know, I don't know about all those stats. You know, there's a lot of folks that in the analytics and all that stuff and the numbers, whatever. And Colin brought that up to me. You know, he said when you start looking at the numbers versus, you know, the the big big that I, I produced, I was able to produce back then. So, uh, off of Carlton, that's monumental. That's yeah. 
Carlton, he has to remember because I was actually looking at this today. You you had more hits. I don't know if you know this or not, but you had more hits off of Steve Carlton than any other pitcher during your career. Really? Yeah. During my career? Is yeah. That right? Yeah. You had 19 well, hits off my... Carlton. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, I you, didn't know that. Yeah, you actually you hit over 400 against him, and I believe you slugged over 700 against him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, I did not know that. Oh my, oh my word. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, it's also interesting to me. I saw I was reading uh uh, uh interview that you did with uh with Jeff Perlman, uh who I just talked uh-huh. to recently who was by the time that people are listening to this, Jeff is actually the podcast guest uh from last week <laughs> uh, uh okay. on, on my on my show and I, but I was looking at a uh, a question that he asked you, uh, uh, I think he asked you about J.R. Richard and Nolan Ryan, and Nolan Ryan, and you said that actually you didn't mind facing either one of those guys, which I thought was a really uh, interesting answer because those are the two guys that probably get mentioned the most as far as uh, uh, hitters being in- intimidated from that era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the way I look at it, any pitcher that throws fastballs, okay, can't throw five fastballs to you and you not hit it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're going to mix in a curveball there somewhere. So ninety percent of your better pitchers, hard throwing better pitchers, they usually when they're really really good, they're really on. Is when both of their pitches are working. Mm-hmm. But then there's times when one is not. Okay, and usually the one that's not is their breaking ball. And I was able to catch up to quite a few of their breaking balls from time to time and, 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 and put them in play. So it didn't intimidate me. It just, I, I looked for the pitch that they were going to set me up to get me out on, uh, to get me out. Well, I looked for a pitch that they wanted to throw to set up their out pitch, put it that way. And that's to hit the pitch I wanted to hit. I didn't want to hit their out pitch because that's the reason that it's called an out pitch because it works. You follow me? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like uh, Bruce Suter. Um, you know, you don't want to hit his sinker. You want to hit whatever he throws to set that up. And what happens with a lot of guys that pull hitters, they're going to pull over the top of that pitch. This is like a guy like Fernando Valenzuela. You know, he's going to get you out on that screwball, but he's going to throw you this little lousy slider, and he's going to throw you this little limp fastball. And neither one of them, you know, have anything on it. But if you decide to put it in play, that takes away his outfits. And so I did the same thing with JR, and I did the same thing with Nolan. I, I took off more um, days when Nolan pitched than JR. Okay, I would just get sick that day, you know, and I would, <laughs> I, you know, I would go and tell Dick Williams, you know, hey, Dick, how many sick days do I have? <laughs> you know, <laughs> no one pitching. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, JR and I were real good friends. I, I remember hitting a home run off of him. After one night, we had gone out for dinner the night before, and that I died, and he hung a slider to me, and I hit this massive home run off of him in Montreal, and I ran around the bases so fast because I really didn't want him to know that I did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know you got to bat against him again here in a in a couple of innings, you know. Exactly. That's a business yeah, decision. A mine too, so I was kinda, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to style on him or anything like that. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. you know, I mean, in 77, I mean, you, you came on strong. I mean, I think you, you were 22 years old that year, uh, made the all-star team. Uh, what's that like? Is a, is, you know, a 22-year-old kid at Yankee Stadium playing in the all-star game. I mean, that, that's a pretty incredible accomplishment, especially that young. Yeah, and I, I don't remember much of it. You know, that's uh, that's the weird part. I, I remember uh, the plane and uh, the at-bat, and uh, I remember hitting a ball 420 feet that would have been a home run in any other ballpark in, uh, in uh, the major leagues, and it would have been a home run in, in Yankee Stadium when they moved the fences in, okay? Right. Back in the day, the fence was 430, and I hit this ball 420, and Fred Lynn caught it, and uh, nowadays, that fence, I believe, is like three ninety nine. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. I mean, come on, man. You know, so I, I, I crushed this ball, and it was just a routine out. And uh, so I do remember that. <laughs> and uh, first at bat, first at bat, I, I was walked on uh, four pitches. And so um, I, I had made a pretty decent name for myself in that first, first in those first two years. Well, I mean, let's talk about let's talk about '78 because one of the things I mean, and obviously the thing that, that that people want to talk about when when they hear the name Ellis Valentine is is your throwing arm, and uh, you know, and, and and you and I talked about that that last year when I interviewed you for the book that I'm working on, and I've I've talked to a number of guys uh, over the course of the last year and the names that come up, you know, it's always the same three or four names when I say, you know, who are the outfield throwing arms that you remember? And it's it's Valentine and Clemente and, uh, you know, a couple of other names that will come up. But in 78, you did something that I, I wish that I knew. I mean, if I, if I was brighter, I would look into this and try to figure it out myself. But in 78, you had 25 outfield assists and you hit 25 homers. Now, I don't know if we can start a 25-25 club uh, <laughs> here or not, but I guarantee you... Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that right now. Let's start that right now. Yeah, because I guarantee you there's there's less guys in the tw- in that 25-25 club than there are in the 30-30. Uh, uh, oh, wow. You know, I mean, there can't be many guys in the history of the game that have ever done that. So, I mean, for, for you... I mean, what was a what was a better feeling? Uh, you know, launching a home run or, or or gunning a guy down on the base path? Uh, gunning the guy down on the base path because it was something that I prepared to do. I never prepared to hit a home run. Okay, I can I can honestly say to you, out of the hundred and twenty three home runs that I have in the big leagues, I probably went up to the plate to hit a home run maybe three times. Wow, maybe. Maybe I went up there and with a mindset of I'm I'm going to get a pitch here and I'm going to I'm going to drive this ball out of the ballpark and I just knew I was going to do it um, and and, and I, I could rem- almost remember the times that I did that uh, but in uh, outfield play I kind of I kind of pre-planned every assist knowing that I just hadn't got my hands on the ball. You follow me? Uh-huh. So that was the thing. Uh, I, I had thrown the guy out at every base. I, I had played the ball to the left of me, played the ball to the right of me, over my head, in front of me, uh, played the fly ball, I played the ground ball, I played all that in my head prior to the ball getting to me. And it was just 
you know, par for the course to throw him out. So I had already thrown him out. I just hadn't gotten my hands on the ball yet. Now, now the thing that now I want to say to my listeners: if you if you need to be reacquainted with what kind of an arm Ellis Valentine possessed, just go on Google. Just Google Ellis Valentine arm. All right, and you will find lots of videos on YouTube of Ellis doing his thing. And and I was looking at one of those videos. Uh, uh, today before uh, before we were going to have our conversation and some of the throws that you made I, my, my personal favorite is at Shea Stadium you, you throw out Dale Murphy at the plate and Murphy was so sure he was going to score he didn't even slide yeah <laughs> Which, you know so I mean that's just not and you know obviously Dale Murphy knows a little something about uh, baseball but you know you were doing things out there that guys just weren't making the mental calculation for you know it's it's like some of the throws that that uh, you know the the throw that Bo Jackson made uh, I think when he threw out Harold Reynolds the throw that you made when you threw out uh, Davy Concepcion from the warning track uh, at Olympic Stadium I mean did you ever surprise yourself I mean I know you knew what kind of ability you possessed I mean there's no doubt about that but I mean did you ever make a throw and then just think to yourself like man I'm pretty good. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I was ever impressed by my arm. I think it was just something that I could do. I mean, always uh, growing up, I always had great throwing abilities. I always had good form. I always had great, you know, uh, instinct in terms of uh, mechanics and how to position my feet to throw. Because that's where you throw from. You don't throw from your arm. You throw from your feet. Uh, from your foot all the way up and uh, so uh, the arm is just the continuation of everything else that had happened already and that's the one thing that people don't get because a lot of guys just feel like they just want to you know throw the ball with their arm and no you throw the ball with you know your lower body and it generates all the way up to your arm and then out and so no I, I was never impressed by any throws that I made it was just pretty much normal it was just kind of like uh you know just what i do uh like i told you early on when uh, the guy came to my house at seven years old to work me out to see if i could play with his nine-year-old and uh you know he had me on the side of the house and he's, he's having me play catch with him and he was like i think i threw two balls to him and he went over and he talked to my mom and my dad shook their hand and I saw him at the ballpark two days later. A couple <laughs> days later. Um, that was it. Uh, he, he said, this is a done deal. And uh, so my mother was a beautician, so she, she knew a lot of people in the community. And, uh, you know, in the beauty shop, they were talking about, you know, me throwing and breaking out windows, you know, with baseballs and playing up and down the street and hurting people's cars and whatever. And they said, we got to get this boy onto an organized baseball field, you know, or whatever. And uh, so that's how they got me hooked up. But, no, I was never impressed by the throwing. I just did what I was supposed to do. And I think defense wins ball games. That's just the way I think. Because I look at it this way, Ricky. We are all professional ball clubs. That's why we were going to Chicago when the Chicago Cubs weren't doing that great and they would whoop us, okay? Mm-hmm. Because this is, these are other professional ball players. They might not be doing as well as your team, but they can beat you on any given day. And so I feel that a professional athlete and a professional team 
doing what they can do. Right. So defense, to me, is a winning ticket. Do you ever find it frustrating when you when you watch baseball when you see? You know, particularly, you know, somebody who played, uh, you know, your position, and maybe you right. see a guy with a with a great arm, but you know, he's he's he's, you know, not hitting the cutoff man, or he's he's making the he's making the showy throw, but it's uh, you know, he's not fundamentally sound as far as having his head in the right place. You know, did, did, yeah. is, is that is that ever frustrating for you? Because I mean, I know not only did you have a great arm, but but you had an accurate arm. Yes. Yes, that was the real key. It was whenever I threw it somewhere, I, I threw it pretty much on the money. And whenever I did overthrow someone, it was right over their head. It wasn't off to the right or to the left. I was just kind of release it just a little bit too soon. I'd overthrow, uh, you know, a target every once in a while. But they would always say it was right on line. You know, it was just high. Uh, but uh, no, uh, my, my family, rather would be the one that would let you know it's, it's comedy in our house and my wife just shakes her head when she sees guys throw and they're midway the outfield and, and they throw the ball and it bounces in the infield on the infield dirt <laughs> before it gets to the cutoff man or, or, and, and she just shakes her head and she goes really <laughs> you know and, and these guys these guys are getting paid eight nine million dollars a year I mean, how much money would I have made? Uh, I just was before my time, but anyway. Um, hey, we can't all be you know, married to the greatest throwing arm in baseball history now, you know. She's got to cut these guys some slack. I know. My, my wife says to me, she looks at me all the time, and she said, can't you play one more year? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, put a Band-Aid on my knee and let it go out there and make it happen. That's it. But you no, start I, training I, now. Uh, you know, you got one more in you. My, my, <laughs> I get I get I get I get calls all the time and I get videos sent to me or you know some footage or whatever and they say man check this throw out are you kidding me I mean you know and this guy is making da 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 so you know um, you know it's 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 interesting but this comedy is the thing. <laughs> well, listen. One thing I remember from our conversation last year was you telling me how much you love to make the throw to third base. You, I, I think you told me that it just set up for you visually. You, that was your favorite throw. It was. It was. Uh, it was the angle. Okay, uh, because you know you would you would see the, you know it's almost like this triangle offense that you hear Phil Jackson talk about. You know, with uh, with the uh, with the Lakers back in the day, I could see second base. I could see third base. You know, uh, the, the 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 pitcher. And it was just like an arrowhead, just just going right to third base. You follow me? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I would try to I would try to you know cap, capture that 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 point. You know where to pick it up and just throw because I, I try to look at the two sides and I try to just zero right in on the middle of that. And so it's a broader approach. To that throw than just looking at third base and throwing, uh, you know, I, I, it it kind of brings me into the accuracy. It's almost like a scope on the top of a gun, on top of a rifle. You know, there's a classic throw uh, of you nailing Pete Rose at third base too that I know is out yeah. there that uh, people yeah. can find the video of as well. <laughs> but, yes, yes, and it took me a long time to do that because Pete wouldn't run on me. Uh, it took about six years for that to happen. Um, 
so I knew that that situation, he had to go first to third. Uh, he had to at least try it, and it was a 99.9% chance he would make it. So you know how accurate I had to be. Right? Did you take it? Did you take it personally when a guy when a guy would run on you when he would when he would? No. Yeah. No, I uh, I remember the first assist I got in the major league was Tim Car Tim McCarver uh, in Philadelphia, and I do remember that. Okay, um, and uh, uh, what happened? I just got called up to the big leagues. Tim McCarver didn't know who I was, but it was the same base hit like on the the play to Rose uh, to Rose out on. Mm-hmm. It was the exact same base hit and one bounce to me in right center field. He's going from first to third. I see the angle. I see the second base. I see the shortstop. I see the third baseman, okay? Uh, And bam. I just pinpointed right on there in the middle of the third base. I threw up Jim McCarver by about four or five feet. Uh, And he got up and looked out there like, where'd that come from? Uh, You know, it was the same, same throw, uh, Ricky, and... I would think in those first couple of years, you probably made some guys look really silly when they when they didn't know who you were yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I remember in those first few years what happened. Uh, guys would stay out in the dugout uh, during infield practice to watch us throw to be able to know what to do on the base path. That was back in the day when baseball made infield practice or took infield practice every game um, and guys would stay out there and want to throw and um, uh, just uh, it's just the way baseball was back then but now they don't do they don't do infield practice anymore you know I, one thing that I gotta ask you about is uh, is Fantasy Island you know in I think in 78 you were on an episode of Fantasy Island with I believe George and Ken Brad and Freddie Lynn and Garvey and maybe a, maybe another guy or two. I don't know if I'm forgetting somebody. They got all of the local guys that had made the All-Star team that year. And I was one, so I got in on the list and actually had two lines in the, in the, uh, in the film. In the little, little show. I saw um, one of them. I saw one of them today. You, you, you say, how about a, how about a litter high fastball, Ken? <laughs> yes, Ken Brad. Yes, yes, yes. And then my next line was uh, at the end of the show when when um, uh, uh, Berghoff was coming in the dugout. I said, "You're a hell of a pitcher, Delaney," because that was his name in the show, and uh, that was my second line. So I'm part of the Screen Actors Guild because of that, and I get like oh, fifty cents maybe every other year or something. <laughs> oh my God, that is tremendous. You know? well, Listen, I, uh, I, you know, I want to uh, ask you just a couple of quick questions about your time uh, in the uh, with the Mets, and, and then I want to talk to you about past pros. But I, I, okay. you know, you you got dealt to New York in in eighty uh, one, I believe. What what was it like going, you know, from Montreal, which is, you know, not a not a real big media town, to New York, which is the media hub of, you know, the world. Well, it was devastating, and I'll just be honest. Uh, I was just a kid, uh, still, you know, although, you know, grown man in uh, numbers, but, you know, in terms of emotional and personal development, I was still a kid. Uh, 
it was after I had the major injury, like I had in the jaw uh, in 1980, and I felt like, you know, I just wasn't of value to them anymore. And so, yeah, I took this person, I really did, and it really, and uh, it shows. Then when I went to New York, I just wasn't the same player that people knew me uh, as, um, you know, because of the injury. Right. And I, and I really didn't realize the protocol that I was going through. I was going through a lot of the same things the ball players, the football players go through. Um, um, the football players go through with this protocol. Right. Uh, the vision loss, uh, the, the headaches, the, the memory, the memory loss, uh, the dizziness, um, the, the double vision, all that stuff. I didn't, I didn't realize uh, that I was experiencing all of those symptoms, and I did. I experienced all those symptoms for the past, for the for the next oh three years, really. Yeah. And then uh, I, I it it finally started to come around. I just sent Andre Dawson a, a text just uh, the other night talking about Stanton because Stanton is struggling right now. You know, Stanton got hit two years ago. Right, he's really he struggling. Got, yeah. Oh yeah, and see, and people don't realize. What he's going through, I do. I can tell you exactly what he's going through. People are not relating to it, but see, it takes a while for a guy, you know, come back and you kind of override the fact that you get hit because you're, you're all gun ho to come back and you're focused and you're, then that off season comes around and the brain takes over. See, and I understand about that now being a, a, a counselor and going through all of this, you know, continuing education training and certification training on, on mental issues and mental health and all of those things and understanding how the brain works. Uh, it's just like a small child, you know, they'll, they'll walk up to a hot stove the first time because they don't know any better, bam, and they'll touch that hot stove and they'll burn themselves. Now, the next time that that small child gets close to that stove, even if the stove is off, mm-hmm. he's going to react to it. This is what the brain does. He didn't have to think about it. The brain made him react to it because it remembered. So what's happening with Stanton right now, his brain now is remembering he got hit by nothing at him. And it took a year or so for him to get through those initial, I'm going to fight my way back, because he got hit pretty violently. Oh, yeah. He sure did. And uh, so I'm telling you right now, he's going through exactly. I went through. You look at me. I hit 208. Okay. After I never hit 208. Right. No, that's not. That's you were a different hitter at that point. Absolutely. I, 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 208. I mean, are you kidding me? That guy's now that haven't been hit hitting 208. Look at Cecil Fielder. He's hitting two one one ninety something. Or I mean, I mean Prince Fielder. He's hitting you know below 200. Right. I mean, uh, and this guy didn't get hit. But I got hit, and that caused me to dip down to that. But if you look at the next couple of years, after I, the first year with the match, and then the second year it came up to 288, I, I started to get it back. And then I went to the Angels, and I, my hitting was starting to come around again. My, my, my vision was starting to kind of retrain itself, you know, and I, and, I started, and I started to do better. But what happened, I kept having all these additional injuries, leg, you know, the knee, the Achilles, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And they were platooning me. They platooned me with the Mets. They platooned me with Joel Youngblood. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, not even another a left-handed hitter. They platooned me with another right-handed hitter. Are you kidding? 
Yeah. Yeah, so there was left-handed pitchers out there that I did not have the fear of at the time, but I didn't get to play because Joe Youngblood played. Right. So in other words, see, I'm hitting 288, and here's a left-handed that I could capitalize on, and I'm sitting on the bench. I got tremendously frustrated in New York, and I said some things, and I went through some stuff, so I just wasn't able to do in New York what I was capable of doing, but there were a lot of circumstances that surrounded that. And, and for people that don't know, you you got you got hit by uh, a relief pitcher for the Cardinals named Roy Thomas uh, in May thirtieth, nineteen eighty, and uh, you know basically shattered your cheekbone. Uh, um, yeah. And and you know and I think last year when we were discussing this, you were talking about you know you actually you put up really good offensive numbers when you when you came back in nineteen eighty, but. You were you were saying like that off season. That's a lot of time for things to play and replay in your in your mind or in your subconscious mind or whatever. Interviews and talking about it and watching uh, the same thing. I mean, and then you know, Joe Torrey helped me out a lot when when I went to New York prior to him leaving because at the latter part of that uh, first year there with him. He really encouraged me to take the helmet card on the front. Right. You, uh, and were you the, uh, were you the first guy to, to use, uh, or you were one of the first guys to use? Uh, one of the first guys to yeah. use it. Yes, I was one of the first in a lot of ways. I just don't get recognition for it. But, you know, <laughs> I was one of the first in a lot of ways to do a lot of things that uh, um, happened in baseball. It just said, you know, back in the day, you know, we don't have the the kind of network now that people get to know about all these things it's just like the shoe that uh, with the heel on the back you know how do you, you know the the, the, the shoe doesn't have a flat sole all the way back mm-hmm. but when I tore up my Achilles when I messed up my Achilles in, in uh, New York I mean in, in, uh, with the Angels of California Nike made me a special shoe with the heel on the back I didn't do a patent on the shoe but if you notice from that point forward or whatever they were starting to develop shoes from then on that kind of gave a guy a lift okay mm-hmm. so uh, that shoe uh, I had to wear because of my Achilles so I had one shoe with a high heel on it and the other shoe didn't have one so um, it was a lot of first but you know well hey one thing that uh, I want to ask you about the very it last two or three years of your career is I believe that the I know the Angels, and I want to say that the Rangers as well d- d- had toyed around with the idea of converting you into a uh, relief pitcher. Uh, how, how, clo- how close did that come to to, to be in r- reality? Well, not really. I think it was just kind of speculated on it because mm-hmm. I was originally drafted by the Angels as a pitcher, as a pitcher first baseman. And, um, I never pitched, never played first. The year before I graduated, I was second in the nation in hitting in the high, in high school. I hit 542. The guy that beat me out hit 543. This is the nation, okay? Right. This is the nation. So I, everything else is kind of breaking down on him. His arm is still working. Let's see if he can hold some balls across the plate. You know what I mean? So. We, we gave it a shot, but, you know, my legs just didn't stay under me. You know, like I said before, uh, on, you know, so you throw it with your legs. You don't throw it with your arms. So my legs under me to make something happen as a pitcher at the end of my career. It just, you know, they all tried, the, the, the Rangers tried, and the uh, Angels tried. 
continue to not be able to do it. How much did all those years on that hard astro turf uh, t- take out of your legs? Do you think? Well, it it, it, it hurt a lot of us. You see, where a lot of guys have had replacements. I'm fortunate enough not to have to replace them because I left Montreal. So I just had his knee replaced just recently. Andre had his done a few years ago. Uh, so you know these guys. Um, you know, they, they, they played on this turf for a long, long time and it damaged their cartilage and it damaged their knees, uh, tremendously. And so, uh, yes, it, it, it did have an effect on, on them, uh, it had an effect on me and uh, it had an effect on a lot of the guys. But that stuff was really hard to play on. Uh, it was nice because it was easy to maintenance, but yeah, it's, it's hard on the body. And, you know, let's talk about what you're doing now, because I one of the things that I've been aware of now for for, you know, probably going on about a year is is the this uh, thing that you co-founded called Past Pros, where you are helping to connect uh, these uh, the, the former athletes with their fans. And I mean, it's just so neat what you guys are doing. Could you kind of tell my listeners what Past Pros is all about? Well, Pat Stokes is just an extension of myself and also uh, my partner, Colin Greer, uh, up in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, I, I, I have a servant part, okay? I've always wanted to give back. I've always wanted to help others. And I do that now even with my charity that I have here now uh, in, uh, in, in Texas. Uh, what I do now, I have a charitable uh, lawn service for seniors that are disabled. You know, these folks can't cut their grass, so I go cut their grass for them. I'm retired now. I, I'm not broke. I have some money. I, me and my wife manage our money well, and we did okay in the last 30-some years. Uh, I've been out of baseball and got my wife together. And uh, so uh, what happens, I, I just have a servant's heart. I, I, I give. And so I, I look for ways to help people do things on their own. And so what I did with past pros, I'm playing golf with Colin up in uh, Canada, and I shared with him I was getting ready to clear out my attic because uh, I met him. I was getting ready to clear out my attic and sell a lot of the baseball, old baseball gear, autograph men, billiard stuff that I could sell on eBay. And Colin and I talked about it, and so a month, a month or so later, he called me because he's an IT guy, uh, and he said, you know, let's uh, talk about some things. So we came up with this idea to develop a website that would uh, develop a program that would allow players to move their memorabilia or their favorite stuff that they've had for years and years like I do. I got like 12 bags of baseball stuff from various teams up in my attic. And so we came up with this idea and we developed a a program and uh, we bring on former professional athletes, not just baseball, but football, basketball, soccer, hockey, you name it, uh, and allow them to have a, a place where people can go and there's this laundry list of former professional athletes that they can get their memorabilia signed or, you know, things, uh, um, get the guys to come for an appearance or um, different, you know, venues. And um, I'm just helping out guys. And, you know, uh, a lot of guys are just coming on board and they love it and, it's it's growing and yeah it's fantastic i mean i you know i'm just looking i mean here just recently i mean you know i think you guys have added hal mccray and bob horner and 
I mean, uh-huh. you, you could go down through the list of guys that uh, are, are uh, on the on the site and a part of Pass Pros, and you know anybody who's my age and, and, or anywhere around my age and a baseball fan. I mean, you're just going to go down this list and, and see all these names that are like such a such a big part of uh, uh, you know if, uh, when you were growing up a baseball fan. Exactly. Exactly. They put it in your shopping cart. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And, uh, you know, you can get an autograph from them. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of guys on there that I've, uh, I, I've really cherished, uh, them coming on board because they were really friends of mine. And then there's a lot of guys that are really skeptical, you know, because we don't make any money on any of the guys. We don't make any money on any of the things that they, they, uh, autograph or they, uh, our company does not. That's the thing that I I wanted to eliminate because throughout Major League Baseball, uh, a professional guy's career, most of us are lazy. And a lot of us allow other people, third party, to come in and do things for us that we could do for ourselves. And they have to pay them a penny or two to do this. So in other words, now we're teaching guys how to be their own entrepreneur themselves to the fact they get to the fact they get a point of contact and um, whatever they want to do what I do is I put some money aside for my grandson uh, and my granddaughter for college uh, so I'm not even using it yeah, <laughs> you know and I mean, it's just fantastic. I mean, you know, I I, I sit here. I'm I'm, lo- I'm on. Uh, it's passpros.com. That's a P A S T P R O S. You guys are on Twitter at passpros. But I'm you know mm-hmm. J R Richard and Al Oliver and yes. Frank White and Dave Parker. I mean, uh, all these names and you know it's just, it's just fantastic. And in football, I see Dwight Clark and. Basketball players like Marcus Johnson and 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 Otis Birdsong. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Marcus you, Johnson went to high school with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah, there you go. Right. You got hockey players, uh, soccer even. Uh, so you know, it Correct. just seems like it's. You know, it seems like you guys are bringing new new folks on board. Uh, you know, just basically on a weekly basis. So uh, you know, it's it's really cool to see. And, and one of the things that. That I'm I'm really excited about is that you guys are now branching out into doing some uh, memorabilia signings, and I believe that we we got a show coming up in August in Texas. Ellis, could you could you tell my listeners yeah. about that one and and, and let them, let them know where you yeah, guys are going to be? Yeah, well, this show is going to you know allow guys to come out and and uh, bump wheels, myself, uh, uh, Jeff Russell. Uh, Don Stanhouse, uh, you know, guys that come out and, and you know, uh, autograph, you know, various pieces of memorabilia for for uh, individuals that come. And, uh, you know, we're going around to all the local areas that we have past pro players uh, on our list, and we're putting together a collage of guys, and we're going to put on these types of signings and uh, these, uh, these groupings. So, you know, just something Colin and I thought we would experiment with. We're going to see how well this one works, and then we'll 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 go from there. You know, it's been it's been a a real uh, blessing watching this thing over the past three years get to a point to where we we really feel that uh, these guys are going to you know get a chance. 
to to see people or to meet people or people going to be able to meet them and they're going to be able to grow their their business grow their their uh their memories out there it's just going to do a lot of things that are just positive uh every time and uh past pros give them an advantage a lot of these guys don't even know how to turn on a computer <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're gonna put on shows and they're gonna go great. Uh, they're gonna do okay. It's, it's putting the guys back together so that they can, you know, they can uh, uh, sit down and maybe you know talk to some some fans and take some pictures. And that's the biggest thing that happens right now, Ricky. Whenever guys come out to take pictures, everybody now has a camera camera phone. Mm-hmm. So back in you know you would have these shows and you know you'd have one photographer. And then, you know, you take a picture here and there. And now everybody wants you sign this and then take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on signing now it turns out to be two hours. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, so it's interesting, but that's what's going to happen. So the the first ever Pass Pros Roadshow, and you can you can read all about this at passpros.com, but it's going to be August the 13th, which is a Saturday, in, in Plano, Texas. And the lineup, as you said, is Ellis Valentine, Bump Wills, Jeff Russell, and Don Stan the Man uh, Stanhouse. Uh, so yeah. four, I call <laughs> four pretty good names uh, right there yeah. for the for the first one. And and I'm I, I'm going to tell the, my my listeners I'm I'm actually going to fly down from Chicago. Just to just to see this thing, so you know it's a you know it's a big deal. It's got the uh, Super Seventy Sports seal of approval. Uh, I, I'm going to go down there, and anybody, and I would encourage anybody, certainly if you're in the uh, the you know the Greater Dallas area or anywhere around there, to uh, uh, c- come out and, uh, and and see these guys and, and and be a part of something that I think is going to be a going to be a pretty great day. It's going to be pretty neat. Um... You know, I let you do it. You said pretty good promo there, Rick. I'm going to bring you on board there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Well, I mean, the thing that I can tell you is is that a lot of my listeners are going to be interested in this and are going to want to get out. So uh, I encourage everybody to uh, to get out to Plano, Texas on August the 13th. Come out and see Ellis and the guys and uh, get some cool memorabilia signed. Well, Ellis, listen, can't thank you enough. Continued success uh, to you and past pros, and uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you down uh, in Texas in August. Very good, Rick. All right, my friend, take care. Everybody, take care. Ah, my thanks to Ellis Valentine, and, and my apologies to my listeners. I know that our phone connection got a little bit wonky at times there and especially uh, near the very end and uh, you may have had a hard time hearing what Ellis was saying at the end. I believe he was saying something about how I was a personal hero of his uh, or it's possible that he was just saying goodbye. I mean, I guess we'll never know for sure. There has been a change to the lineup for the Pass Pros Roadshow in Plano, Texas. Bump Wills, who we discussed uh, during the interview, is out and Al Oliver is in. So we've got four all-stars that are going to be on hand. Ellis Valentine, Al Oliver, Don Stanhouse, and Jeff Russell. So it should be a really fun day there in Plano. You can go to the PassPros.com, check out... Uh, more information about it, the location, and, and whatnot. 
My guest next week, and let's keep the baseball theme going, shall we? I think we've got a good thing going here. My guest next week, two-time National League MVP award winner, back-to-back in 1982 and 83, and all-around great guy, Dale Murphy. That's right. Dale Murphy will be on the Super 70 Sports Podcast next week, and believe me, you will not want to miss it. So I will catch you then. Uh, I could have outro music here, right? I mean, I do have a Super 70 Sports theme song, but you know what? I'm a college professor. I, 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 tweet, I tweet. I I do podcasts with poor production values. I'll figure out how to have outro music like next week or something, okay? Until next time, I'm Ricky Cobb. I'll see you on the Super 70 Sports Podcast.